My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. Good to see all of you here on this wonderful Sunday morning. Uh, we are in the book of Luke. We just study the Bible. We take breaks now and then uh, to go on different topics like we'll be doing for 10 weeks this fall. But then we come back to the Word and we have for the last decade or so been in the book of Luke and we're up to chapter 20. And we'll be reading 13 verses here this morning and talking about them. I want to entitle this message, Growing Up Into Kingdom Adulthood. Growing Up Into Kingdom Adulthood. And if you've been here uh, for any length of time, you know the context in which this passage occurs. Jesus has been up in northern Galilee for a long time, talking mainly among the peasants. But now he comes into Jerusalem and he goes into the temple and he causes a disruption. And then different groups of Jewish leaders are coming at him, trying to trip him up. Uh, they're trying to make him look stupid in front of people to try to thin out the crowd a little bit and to show that he's not an authoritative figure. And now in this passage, it's the Sadducees' turn. We haven't confronted the Sadducees in the book of Luke yet. This is a, a group of Jewish leaders who uh, tended to be very intellectual. They tended to be rationalistic. They, they, they came mainly from the upper class. Um, they were the wealthy folks. They were very conservative. What was distinctive about their theology is that they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, the books of Moses, as authoritative. They didn't accept any oral tradition, and even the later prophets weren't held as high status as uh, was Moses. And partly for that reason, they denied the resurrection. They didn't think there was any afterlife. This life was all there, there is because you don't read a lot about the afterlife in the first five books of the Old Testament. They also denied the existence of the angels. Uh, they thought that was just a, a mythological piece that was added later on. So they're going to come now to Jesus and they're going to try to trip him up on his belief in the resurrection. And they're going to have a clever little argument they're going to propose. So here, here's how it goes. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us, that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. That law comes out of Deuteronomy 25. Notice here, and we'll come back to this towards the end of the message, but just notice here that the purpose of this law in Deuteronomy 25 was not to make sure the widow was taken care of. There's other laws about that, but this law was, was for the purpose of, of uh, passing on the family name. And so the brother married the woman to have a baby so the family name would be passed on. Because, and it's very important to the Sadducees because that's their definition of immortality. Your, your, the legacy of your family name is passed on. It says, now there were seven brothers. This is the Sadducees talking now. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her, according to the law. And in the same way, all seven married her and all seven died, leaving no children. At this point, the authorities should have been suspicious. <laughs> Just coincidence. Black widow. Finally, finally, the woman died too. Now here's, here's the puzzle. Now then, at the resurrection, which we deny but you believe, uh, whose wife will she be? since the seven were married to her. The Sadducees here clearly believe that the coming age will be just like this one. And since marriage is practiced in this age, then it must be practiced in that age. And so if there's a resurrection of the life, well, then marriage must be uh, forever. 
And they're, they're, they're hoping that Jesus is going to hear this puzzle. And he'll go, Ah, oh, I never thought of that. Duh! Give me a minute. Just give me a minute. Um, they, they want to trip him up. Uh, but Jesus is not tripped up. Moving on, it says, Jesus replied, the children of this age marry and are given in marriage. The men do the marrying. The women are given away into marriage in this culture. I just note there that um, the term that uh, is used here is huios, which literally means son of, but it's not gender specific, so it, it can be translated children of. For some odd reason, the TNIV translates this, the people of this age. Uh, but it should be the children of this age. In fact, the same term is used two other times, we'll see here shortly, in this narrative, and they translate it children. And it just drives me crazy when a translation in the same passage translates the same word one way, and then in the next sentence translates a different way. We'll see here, later on in this message, that that becomes a very important point. So hang on to that. Uh, we'll come back to it. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead... Well, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, not when the, when the kingdom comes, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. And here Jesus is just doing a little poke back at the Sadducees since they don't believe in angels. They are God's children, we us, since they are children, we us, of the resurrection. Same term that, 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 that's used there. So Jesus is here responding to the Sadducees by basically saying, you guys, you don't get it because the age to come is going to be very different than this age. Uh, it'll be as different from this age as angels are different from humans, but you don't get it because you don't even believe in angels. And then moving on, he says, but in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. For he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, Am, uh, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. The basic logic here is this. Jesus could have found other verses like Daniel 12 that are much more clear about teaching and a resurrection, but these guys don't buy those books. They, they, they don't believe in those books. They only go by Moses. So Jesus is going to quote Moses against them. Even Moses, whom you regard as authoritative, he hints at, at least, that there's going to be an afterlife because God is the God of the living, not the dead. And yet he's called the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So in some sense... They can't be permanently dead. In some sense, they're alive to him even now. And then he finishes up this way. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. The <laughs> well, the teachers of the law here uh, are not the Sadducees. These are folks who believe in the resurrection. It's a different group of Jewish leaders. And they're like, yay! They don't like the Sadducees anyway. So they're like, yes, Jesus, way to go. And that's when everyone shuts up. We'll see later on in this chapter that the teachers of the law have their own issues with Jesus. It's just that they happen to agree with him on the resurrection. We're going to apply this in two ways to our life here. Uh, and as we prepare for that, pray with me here. Father, uh, we just pray that you would cultivate our hearts, soften our hearts to receive your word, to apply it to ourselves, not to think about how it might apply to other people. Uh, God, open us up to receive your word and become more kingdomized than we were when we came here. Increase our confidence and hope in your coming kingdom and help us to manifest your kingdom now. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, amen, amen. Two areas that I think this passage that we studied this morning applies to our life. First one, 
This dialogue between Jesus and the Sadducees, I believe, confronts some of our own tendencies to think like Sadducees. We, we, it confronts our own Sadducee-like thinking. And by that I mean uh, our tendency, at least some of us, our tendency to impose on the coming kingdom categories that fit this age. We tend to think that the coming kingdom will just be sort of an extension of what is here and now. And because we do that, it can trip us up in different ways. It can raise questions that we can't answer. And in some cases, this kind of erodes people's joy of the coming kingdom, and in a few cases, undermines their faith in the coming kingdom altogether. Some examples of Sadducee-like thinking. I've known uh, a few people who have had questions like this. When, when we're in heaven, which is the coming kingdom, uh, are we going to have special relationships? Are, are we, if, if it's not going to be marriage and there would, we're not going to be having children, well then, are we going to know people in any kind of unique, special way? Uh, will we have any kind of special bonds with people, special friendships with people? Or is it all going to be equal? Will, will, will this be like emotional communism? And, and it feels to these people like something's lost here because what makes relationships special is that we've got something that isn't shared with everybody. And so it feels like a loss. You can understand that. Um, uh, there's, it's Sadducee-like thinking because we're taking the way we do friendships here and we're trying to fit the future into it. Others have questions like this. I've known people who have had suffered serious consternation over the possibility that their pets won't be with them in heaven. And you can, you know, chuckle at that, but for those of us who are real animal lovers, this gets serious. Uh, I've known several people, in fact, uh, probably about a dozen over the last couple decades, who have lost their faith as children because the pastor told them no pets will be in heaven, animals aren't immortal. I don't know where the pastors got that information, but they're very confident of it, and it destroyed the kids and sometimes the young adults who are, who are asking it. And just incidentally, the Bible talks about heaven being kind of a restoration of Eden. And there's going to be animals there, lions laying down with lambs, and, and all of creation will be restored. So there's animals in heaven. And what I've always told people is that if you need Pet Max to be there for heaven to be fully heaven for you, then Max is going to be there. I'm just saying. Other questions people have is, are like this. Uh, what age body will I be frozen in for all eternity? I liked my 20-year-old body. My 50-year-old body, not so much. Uh, and, and so they worry about that. Here's one that is not uncommon. Uh, people assume that there'll be nothing like sex in heaven. If there's no marriage, well, then how can there be sex? And that causes some people some serious issues. One lady said it to me like this. this you know, if there's no sex in heaven, that doesn't seem fair at all because I'm, I'm not even having sex down here on earth. So that means I'll never experience that. <laughs> it's an honest question. <laughs> Another person said to me that the idea of going eternity without sex is like, I feel like I'm signing up for an eternal monastery. All right, <laughs> chastity forever. Woohoo! And so, you know, it's Sadducee-like thinking. The best thing you can think of here is sex, and if it's not going to be there, well, that doesn't sound very exciting. Along the same lines, people have wondered this. If, uh, if, if there's no fear of death in, in heaven, obviously, because we're not going to die, well, then how can there be any kind of real excitement, a real adventure? Because when you're on a thrill ride and, and, and you know, taking an adventure of sorts, what makes it exciting is the possibility that you could die. And, and, uh, and so it seems like heaven will be really boring. 
No thrills whatsoever. No real risk-taking whatsoever. No real adventures. Especially if you couple that idea with the sort of church model of, of heaven where we're going to be in an eternal church service singing how great thou art for the 10 billionth time. It looks really boring. And you can understand why there are folks who say, you know what, I'd rather go to hell to play poker with my friends. At least there's some, it's kind of interesting there. But all of that, I think, is the result of trying to fit the coming age into the categories of this present age. It's Sadducee-like thinking, and it sort of trips us up. Paul, I think, gives us a good framework to understand uh, the coming age uh, in 1 Corinthians 13. So listen to this. He says, Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, glossolalia, uh, they will be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. For right now, we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, when the fullness comes, when the kingdom comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a full-grown adult, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, even as I will be fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these, it's the only one that's eternal and it's the only one that never fails, is love. Now, what Paul is giving us here is an analogy. He's saying that this present age is to the coming age what childhood is to adulthood. This present age is to the coming age what childhood is to adulthood. And it explains why we can't fully grasp what's coming. Children experience the world from a very narrow perspective with a limited range of experiences to help them interpret what's going on. They have a, a, a myopic view of existence. And so they know, but they only know in part. And they see, but they don't really see the real thing. It's kind of a reflection as in a mirror. It's always partial. For example, my, my daughter, Danae, when she was about four years old, we were driving home from a Sunday night church service. And uh, uh, she was sitting in the back seat. And as we're driving along, all of a sudden, I hear her say very nervously, Dad, why is the moon chasing us? It looks mad. I was like, what? The moon, it's chasing us. I look in the rearview mirror and I see that there is this big moon, nice bright moon, and we're going by these trees along the side of the road. And when you look back, it looks like that moon is just kind of running alongside the treetops. And see, in her world, her little world, that moon was probably like a, a three foot wide beach ball. And it's about 20 yards behind us and it's gaining on us. That's how she interpreted it. She had no way of understanding that that's actually a 2,100 mile in diameter piece of rock and it's a quarter million miles away. And she had no way of kind of judging depth perception and things of that sort. So she saw the moon, she knew the moon, but only in part. She saw the moon, but only kind of in a reflection. She didn't get the reality of what was going on there. Because of their myopic experience, kids often react uh, to things in ways that we hope they don't react when they grow up a little bit. When my son, at the age of four or so, broke his ninja turtle, it was the end of the world. Uh, it was the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It was, it was the end of, it, it, all of, all value just got sucked out of the universe. His ninja turtle broke. Now, 
in his little world, this was the biggest problem he could imagine. He had no way of, of entering into you know, the, the incredible poverty that people existed and 40,000 people dying of mal- malnutrition every day and, and, then, and, and natural disasters that are taking place and wars that are taking place. In the big scheme of things, your broken Ninja Turtle really doesn't amount to very much. But see, he's not in the big scheme of things. He's a child. And so for him, this is the worst thing that is imaginable. Now, when Danae grows up, I mean, Danae has grown up, uh, she, she's no longer afraid of the moon, I'm hoping. Uh, although there is a lunar phobia. Have you ever heard of that? There are people who are afraid of the moon, but I mean, that's a different issue. But she's not because she now understands that that's a big piece of rock a long ways away. And my son has become a little more aware of the world problems and doesn't cry over things like broken Ninja Turtles anymore. And hopefully as we grow up, we mature, get a broader perspective, and, and, and it, it causes us to, allows us, empowers us to respond to things more maturely. But there's no way for the kid to just jump into the adult perspective. It's only through the process of, of growing up that you acquire adult, uh, an adult perspective and uh, then can interpret things rightly. The kid, you can, I, I could tell my son... Nathan, you know, there's starving people all over the world and there's wars and there's catastrophes. Your ninja turtle doesn't matter. In fact, I did a little bit of that. <laughs> oh, grow up, come on. But, but he, can't, he doesn't have the framework to get that. He's going to think like a child. He's going to see like a child. Paul is saying that about us right now. We are in, as it were, a childlike stage of existence. We know, but we only know in part. We see, but only through a reflection. We have a myopic perspective, which is why we have a hard time grasping what will look like when we become full adults, what the world will look like when it's finally redeemed, when completeness comes. He tells us that when completeness comes, we will grow up. When completeness comes, we will see face to face. When completeness comes, we'll know fully and we'll be known fully. When completeness comes, we'll love fully as we're loved fully. But right now, we can't grasp that. When completeness comes, God's love will define every square inch of the universe because God's love never fails. It will eventually conquer everything that is inconsistent with that love. When completeness comes, God's love will burn up everything that is inconsistent with that love and will perfect and purify everything that is consistent with that love. When completeness comes, therefore, God's love will burn up all hatred and all uh, all animosity and all violence and all prejudice, all racism, all oppression, all exploitation. It will all be burned up. And when completeness comes, God will burn up all sickness and disease and cancer and, and lymphoma and every other thing that afflicts humanity. And when completeness comes, God will burn up. His love will burn away all the things that blind us right now, all the bondage that we're in and the deceptions that we believe, the lies that we have, uh, the, the struggles that we go through, the, the addictions that we fall into, all the things that keep us from seeing who we truly is and seeing who we truly are and seeing who others truly are, all those things will be burned up. And then we shall see face to face when completeness comes. Then we'll see things as they really are. But we're yet in this cloudy, childlike stage of existence, so we can't, we can't really imagine what that will be like. John says it this way in 1 John chapter 3. I love this passage. He says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, but what we will be has not yet been made known. We know we're children of God, but we don't know what that's going to look like, really. But... We know that when Christ appears, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 
finally, face to face, when completeness comes. We don't have a clear idea of the mechanics of it. We can't figure it out, but we can trust this. When completeness comes and everything else is, 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 is burned away, everything else that keeps us from seeing him as he really is, when all that's burned away and completeness comes, we will be eternally in the presence of the one who is uh, the, the goodness of all that's good and the life of all that's living and the beauty of all that's beautiful and the love of all that is loving. We will be in the presence of the one who is the source of everything that is worth living for, the source of all we aspire towards, the source of all that we dream about. We will be in the presence of beauty itself, the one who incarnates that, and we will be like him. We will be forever reflecting that beauty and reflecting that joy and reflecting that peace and reflecting that love, participating in the beauty and the love of the triune God face to face. When completeness comes, everything else will be gone and God's love will have perfected us to be compatible with him, seeing him as he really is. And I don't know the mechanics of that, but we don't need to know the mechanics of that if we just trust that, that when, when completeness comes and adulthood is here, all the aspirations of our heart will be fulfilled so we can set aside all the Sadducee-like concerns that we have. I guarantee you that when completeness comes, no one's going to be walking around in eternity being sexually frustrated. Just trust him on that one. It's just not, it's not going to happen. And you're not going to feel shortchanged on any kind of social relationships. And you're not going to be crying as you're moaning over the loss of your pet. And, and, and you're not going to be having body issues. You know, I wish I had a different body in heaven. It's not going to be happening. I don't know what it's going to look like. It's going to, the eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard. We can't even imagine that. But I know it will be great and it will be glorious and every dream of the heart will be fulfilled. That's why we have the dreams. It's to move us there. He puts that, those in us to, to make us long for him. And, and look for the day when completeness comes. In a world that is this cynical, so full of animosity, in a world that is so full of just hatred and, 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 and violence, even in a country, which you may have noticed, is becoming increasingly hostile. And, and, and so much demonizing of other people and, and judging of other people and, and, and losing a capacity to even kind of engage on a decent level. In a world like this, it's so easy to get cynical. But believing this when completeness comes empowers us to stay optimistic. I don't care how bad the world gets. I don't care how much is going on around us. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ and just trust in this. When he appears, we shall see him as he is, for we shall be like him. We'll behold him in all of his glory, in all of his beauty, and we will reflect that glory and reflect that beauty, and it will all be worth it. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Stay optimistic. He wins in the end. That's point number one. Here's point number two. Jesus, in this passage, gives us not just a teaching about the coming kingdom, but a teaching about uh, the kingdom now. Let's go back to what he says about the Sadducees uh, as he's engaging with them. The children, we us, of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they will no longer die, for they will be like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. There's two fundamental things you got to know to understand the radical impact of this passage. First, Marriage in first century Jewish culture was foundational to the entire social structure. Everything revolved around that. That was the primary unit that held everything together. 
And you need to know that in that institution of marriage, uh, women were by and large considered or treated kind of like bargaining chips. Uh, the, the, the role of the daughter was you wanted to try to marry her off. She didn't have any choice in this. Marry her off in a way that would improve your social standing, uh, maybe improve your economy, get a good dowry for this. Uh, it was a way, mar- marrying and giving a marriage was a way of forming alliances with people, uh, moving up the social strata, making deals. It was all part of the, the social fabric of the first century, and the women were the bargaining chips, the daughters. So when you had a daughter, you wanted to like, you know, train her really good on how to be a good wife, and, and, and you were hoping to make her look as pretty as possible and, and keep as many teeth as possible in her mouth, and, and, you know, because you, know, you wanted to—it it was a deal kind of a thing, incredibly sexist, incredibly patriarchal. The second thing you got to know is that Jesus here is contrasting two sorts of people. He contrasts the children of this age with the children of God who are also the children of the resurrection. Now this phrase children, huios, that I mentioned earlier, it literally means son of, but it's not a gender specific term, so it, 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 it can be translated children of. And the term as it was used in the first century could be used biologically to refer to biological children. But at least as frequently, maybe even more frequently, it was used in other ways to refer to someone's character or nature. Following this? Like, for example, Jesus says in, in John 13 that Judas is the son of perdition. And he means by that that Judas has the nature of perdition or the nature that is fit for damnation. Uh, Barnabas, his very name means son of encouragement. He's got the nature, the identity, the character of one who encourages. And so you put that together, and what you get is that in this passage, Jesus is contrasting two sorts of people. There are those who are children of this age. Their character fits this age. Their nature fits this age. And that is contrasted with the children of God who are the children of the resurrection. Their character and their nature is compatible with God and fits the age to come. And so in that light, what Jesus is saying here then is this. The children of this age who are very much at home in this world, they are defined by social institutions like marriage, and they're very invested in things like marriage and very invested in in economic uh, uh, trades and and in alliances that can be formed through marriage and in moving up the social strata uh, through marriage and in passing on the family name and making sure that your legacy is preserved. Their nature is that. They're, They're children of the world, and so this is the kind of stuff they care about. What's my social standing? How can I use this institution to my advantage? By contrast, Jesus is saying, the children of God, who are children of the resurrection, have a nature that's no longer defined by social institutions, no longer defined by the culture, no longer defined by the pattern of this world. But the children of God have a character that's given to them by God. And their identity and worth is found in God. And they have a nature that is longing for this coming age. And in that coming age, there won't be the kind of institutions that we have now that, that empower males over females through marriage. And where women are used as bargaining chips, that will be done away with. That's part of this fallen world structure. The children of God, who's got a character that's compatible with God and a nature that longs for this coming kingdom, well, it's altogether different than the children of this world. And the job of the children of God, we are that now. John said it. We are children of God now. And we now have the nature that longs for this coming kingdom. We're supposed to be aliens in this present world structure. 
And our job then is to manifest the coming kingdom now as much as possible. To manifest the character of God now. To manifest that our worth and identity comes from God and nothing else here and now. That's why the Bible says that we are first fruits of the coming kingdom. Fruit that's picked ahead of time. That puts on display the nature of the harvest that is coming. And when you read that, this passage in that light, well, it, it just, you see how radical Jesus was. It's one of the reasons why he got crucified. Because what he's saying to women of the first century and what he's saying to women today is this. The sexist, fallen, oppressive culture of the present age may tell you that your identity is found in your relationship with a man, may tell you that your worth is found in how you marry and who you marry, that your role is bearing children and passing on the name of uh, the, the, the husband you married, and that your pa- purpose is defined by that, passing on this lineage. But if you're a child of God, then women, you, no man gives you your identity, and no marriage determines your worth, and no childbearing defines all of your role, and no passing on of a family name defines your whole purpose. If you're a child of God, then God tells you who you are, and God tells you what you're worth, and God tells you what your role is, and God tells you what your destiny is. That is your nature. And don't accept the crap of the fallen world to define you or keep you down. He is a liberating message that he's given the women of the first century. You're children of that coming age. And when that age comes, there's not going to be this bartering system where you get used as a bargaining chip. And right now, start living that way as a child of the king, knowing your worth, knowing that you're a princess of God. And you don't need some man to confer on you some worth or some institution to tell you what your role is. What it means is this, kingdom women, if you're called to be married, then that's wonderful. That's glorious. Hallelujah. Uh, but if you're not called to be married, that's just as well. Uh, you're not defined by marriage. And the culture may look at you as something's off with you, but there's nothing defective about you. If God doesn't call you to be married, then you just accept that and feel proud about that. You listen to what God says, not what some society says, not what the church society says. No, God confers on you your worth. And if you're called to bear children, wonderful. That's glorious. But if you're called not to, that's wonderful and glorious as well. Don't let the world or the culture, even the church, tell you otherwise. And if you're called to be a stay-at-home mom, wonderful, glorious. It's a high calling. That's a difficult calling, but that's a noble calling. But if you're instead called to lead a company or lead a church, then you listen to God. And don't let the culture tell you otherwise. Your, uh, your nature... Your, your nature is such that you're not defined by the streams of the culture, by the opinions all around you. you know, no, no, you're defined. You're a child of God, and you're defined by God, and all your worth and all your life and all your dignity comes from that. It applies to all of us in different ways. All of us. Because the pattern of the world tries to identify us all in different ways. Maybe in this fallen world with its racist structures and institutions and practices, uh, you have a culture that tells you that your role, maybe it says it explicitly, maybe it says it implicitly, maybe it sort of hints at it, but in different ways communicates to you that your role in your place is to be a second-class citizen in a white-dominated culture. Do not let that define you. Uh, people of God, uh, don't let any practice, don't let any institution, your nature comes from God. Your nature is longing for that kingdom that is coming. And when that kingdom comes, I'll tell you this, I don't know the mechanics of it, but there's not going to be any racism in that culture. When the kingdom comes, there won't be any oppressive structures in that culture. There won't be any unjust practices in that culture. 
And our job is to manifest that now, to put that on display now, to be the first fruits of a, of, of a, of, of a free and equal society now. Let God define you. Let God give you a role. Don't let any of the streams of the culture, the pattern of this world, the institutions define who you are or what your role is. Follow God. Listen to him. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 3. I love this passage. All of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. That's what we wear, the garment of his righteousness. And because of that, there is now no Gentile, Jew or Gentile, nor slave, no, no slave nor free, neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. This is, we're all one. That means we're all equal in Christ Jesus. That is our nature. That is our identity. Someday when the world grows up, the world will be like that, and everything that's inconsistent with that will be purged away. But our job is to grow up now. The world has these infantile categories where they invest so much significance in whether you're male or female. What role do you have as male? What role do you have as female? So much significance in whether you're American or whether you're Iraqi or Iranian or whether you're black or white or Hispanic or American Indian or what have you. So much significance in whether you're upper class or lower class, whether you're rich or poor, what neighborhood do you live in? Invest so much significance in all of that. Someday all of that will be burned away. Our job is to manifest that reality now. Amen? What we see in each other is clothed in Jesus Christ. We see people who are in Christ. Nothing else matters. Nothing else is significant. Nothing else is important. Jesus died for us. That gives us infinite worth. Everything else is incidental. It's in the nature of the world to invest so much significance with that, especially if you're in power. Because those categories of race and, and culture and class and gender, they keep certain people in power and keep others squashed. So, of course, the people in power are going, yeah, let's, in fact, we'll even Christianize it. Our job is to blow that up. Blow it apart. God alone defines who we are. One practical, I'll close with this, one very practical way of applying this is like this. When the kingdom comes, there's not going to be any greed and poverty. There won't be any economic exploitation. None of that. It will all be burned away. As first fruits, our job is to manifest that now. We have a heart that longs for that. And so we're supposed to manifest that now in how we relate to each other, how we relate to the world. To relate, to manifest the, a, 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 the kingdom that is coming is to revolt against the structures of our current age that privilege some economically and exploit others economically. We're going to be looking at this, this for 10 weeks this fall in this Compassion by Command series that we're going through. Because though many people here in the Western culture don't realize it, uh, this is one of the most important topics in the Bible. It's one of the most frequently mentioned topics in the Bible. It is so close to God's heart, it's not funny. It's one of the main ways we're to manifest the, the new kingdom. And so we'll be going through this. Uh, we'll be inviting folks, in fact, starting today, we're inviting folks to join these small groups that will go deeper in the, in the midweek uh, uh, times where they get together than we can possibly go in a sermon here on, on, on the weekends. So watch this video. It's about these small groups. Following Jesus involves serving and relating to those in poverty. More than 400 passages in the Bible make this point. But this aspect of the kingdom sometimes gets ignored. We're launching a church-wide initiative called Compassion by Command. 
that will help equip us to have relationships and serve others across socioeconomic lines, no matter what our economic status is. During our weekend services, we'll explore scripture passages and hear stories about people living in poverty. We will continue the conversation throughout the week in small groups. Here are some people who have already been impacted by Compassion by Command. The thing I like most about my Compassion by Command group was being able to sit in a room with a group of people and not just go through it on my own, but learn all the diverse experiences that everyone else was coming to the group with. How to embrace your neighbor or someone less fortunate than you are. To really help one another, you know, the, the sense of community with the church or, I mean, because you can't get it from the government. But I mean, just to stretch out a hand to your neighbor and, and actually you know, help them. What's interesting is some people, the ones who are more, who are more fortunate than others, don't realize that at any given day they could be in a situation. So they need to embrace that person that is below them or they can see that's below them. Embrace them. Get out there and mingle with them, know them, learn something. It definitely takes you out of your comfort zone. It makes you think about things that you haven't thought about before, or what you could actually do, or the, the little things that you have done in your past. It makes you feel good about yourself, but I mean, really, what is it doing? It's, it's not enough. Coming from all different backgrounds and preconceived notions about all of these issues was a really good foundation for us to be able to talk and even debate and, and really learn from each other. Moving forward after this, I would like to look at some options at some of the things that I could do to be more involved on more of a, a long-term basis where it's not just, you know, a couple hours here or, you know, donating a check or a bag of groceries. Even though it's hard, it's worth it. These uh, groups that we can start setting up today, um, here's what they won't be. It's not going to be about some kind of judgment. Uh, it's not going to be about you know, trying to make someone feel guilty because they live at a certain standard of living or earn more than others. Nor is it going to be about what those who aren't poor can do to help the poor. It won't only be about that. Because the reality is, is that this is a two-way thing. Reality is, is that the poor are in our midst. There's folks here, are, we have an incredible spectrum of economic levels in the church. So this is about us talking together about this. And it's a two-way street. Uh, I found that, that in my relationships with, with the poor, there's stuff I learned from them that I wouldn't learn any other way. And, and so it's just not about us, someone imparting of the resources to others. It's about building relationships uh, and to, to gain different perspectives that cause us to live in a different way. I really encourage everyone. All the small groups that are existing, take this material. We put together a booklet uh, that has just some great resources uh, that we've adopted from Here's Life Inner City that will help us go deeper and look at everything the Bible says about this important topic. And uh, uh, those who aren't small groups, I encourage you to join these temporary groups where we can go deeper with this. I think it's going to be a great thing for all of us together as a church body to be experiencing uh, in, uh, in this period of time. So uh, please consider that and take that seriously. Also, this is a seminar, and so we have assignments we, uh, to carry on throughout the week back at the Hub. So sign up for the Compassion by Command groups. Go to the Hub to pick up your assignments. Go back to the Hub. For any other issue you have, go back to the Hub. 
And as I end this, uh, if you don't want to go back to the hub, come up front and, and receive prayer. We'll have a prayer team up here. If you have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, I encourage you to come forward and, and, and pray with these folks. Let me end with this prayer. Father, as we leave this place, help us to be no longer conformed to the pattern of this age in all of its childishness, but rather to be conformed to your image, to grow up as kingdom people, to be defined by you and nothing else, and thereby put on display the beauty of the coming kingdom in all of our relationships and all of our thoughts, words, and deeds, to put the beauty of your character and the coming kingdom on display. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said one last time, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Go out and manifest the kingdom. Thanks for tuning into this message from Woodland Hills. We hope you enjoyed it. You can download more sermon resources, including study guides and our entire sermon archive, on our website at whchurch.org. You can also discuss the sermons and connect with other members of the Woodland Hills body on the bridge at bridge.whchurch.org.